The address was 3A Ivy Lane. I was told the building had originally been an orphanage. The apartment consisted of the whole first floor, but had a far smaller footprint than the ground and basement floors, which belonged to J.W. Ballard and Sons Morticians. I liked how peaceful it was. It gave me a strange sense of tranquility, knowing that all my neighbours were dead. I'd never have to listen to the machinations of their humdrum lives. The place had high ceilings. There was a leaded Oriel window in the front room and a cast-iron fireplace in the bedroom. Something about it made me feel like Rapunzel in the tower. When all the boxes and trunks had been brought in, I pulled the heavy door to behind me and it closed with a satisfying thud. Then, nothing. It was as silent as a tomb. I stood for a long time in the hallway, dumbstruck by the quiet. When I roused myself back into consciousness and climbed the stairs, my first instinct said to make the bed, so if nothing else, at least I had a place to sleep. But the first box I greedily unpacked was full of books. I sat cross-legged in the centre of what would be the sitting room, with its high vaulted ceiling, devouring a short story about a doctor and a monster. I could have stayed reading, holed up in this fortress of boxes, but I noticed the light had started to dwindle, and there were no lamps. I fumbled around in the half-light, indiscriminately tearing open boxes until I found a candle. Once lit, it threw out a sickly glow, just enough to illuminate the space in front of me, so I thought it best to unpack the blankets and prepare the bed before night crawled in and I ended up sleeping there on the floor. Other than a large, empty wardrobe and a heavy bed frame, both of carved wood, the bedroom felt eerily empty and deathly cold. I shook out the woolen blankets, unleashing a cloud of dust that made me sneeze the kind of sneeze that sends a shudder through your entire body and makes your hair stand on end. The kind of sneeze more primitive folks would have feared would make their soul pray for the devil. Once the dust had settled, I lay at the blankets on top of the bed, pulled off my boots and crawled under, still wearing my dress. While the blankets shielded me from the chill of the air and the irresistible pull of sleep tugged at my eyelids, I could not settle. The first night in an unfamiliar place is never the most peaceful, but in spite of my tiredness and the late hour, rest was elusive. It was April, and even on the grey and rainy days, it had been warm enough to go out with just a shawl, but nothing I could do could warm my bones in that room. The air moved strangely too. A gentle draught would catch a strand or two of my hair and jolt me into a state of acute awareness. I finally felt the weight of sleep pressing in the early hours just as the first misty sunlight crept in around the curtains. I woke, cold and disoriented, in a flustered panic which was quite the juxtaposition to the grave-like stillness of the room. I threw aside the blankets, leaving the bed in an unmade heap, determined to warm the place and make it feel homely. Still wearing my dress from the day before, I wrapped a thick shawl around my shoulders and set about finding the kettle. I pulled the thing from a box with a clattering which was deafening in the quiet of the place, filled it to the brim from the spluttering kitchen tap, and put it onto the stove with a clang. The gas hissed before illuminating in the brightest blue as I struck the match and held it to the stove. I stood for a moment, 
basking in the warmth of the weak flame, and allowed my mind to wander. I could feel my hand warming, the heat penetrating down to my chilled bones, my palm becoming clammy. A sharp hissing sound brought me back into the room, before I realised that hissing was coming from my skin. My left hand was clasped around the copper body of the kettle before instinct jerked it away. Immediately I turned on the tap and plunged my hand under the sputtering jet of water. My palm and fingertips glowed with red, but thankfully did not blister. I wrapped them with a dampened cloth, then left the kettle on the stove, the water inside prickling to a simmer, an uneasy feeling gripping at my stomach. I returned to the sitting room, strewn with boxes and cases. I sorted, methodically, through the piles of my possessions, until I happened upon the box I sought. A small wooden box, inlaid with the prettiest mother of pearl, full of charms and souvenirs, that my father dismissively called crow treasure, the useless trinkets of a bird-brained woman. I fished around in the box until I felt the cool, smooth stone somewhere close to the bottom. I had found it as a child on a rare trip to the seaside. It was different to the other pebbles, in that it had a hole right through its middle like a stab wound. An old woman told me it was a hagstone, protection from black magic, and that I should keep it on my person, as to possess a charm and keep it locked in a box is the same as having no charm at all. These things must be kept close to feel their effects. I tried to remember her face as I plucked the stone from its hiding place, but it escaped me. All I remembered was being dragged away by my elbow and berated for talking to gypsies. Nonetheless, I had kept the stone all this time. I threaded a length of leather cord through the hole in the centre of it and tied it around my neck, satisfied that whatever I had felt in the kitchen was simply a flight of fancy and nothing more. The kettle shrieked. My blood ran cold at the horrifying sound. I was becoming accustomed to the silence, it seemed. I steadied myself and returned to the kettle, with the hagstone to protect me from any unseen threat. I fetched a tin from another half-opened box, and tipped what I guessed to be a teaspoonful of leaves into the pot. They danced in the boiling water, leaving amber trails behind them. I poured the tea into a small porcelain cup, which had become chipped during the move, immediately cradled it in my good hand, and retreated to the bed and the warmth of the woolen covers. Everything remained in its place, just as I had left it, but the bedroom felt altered somehow. The stillness had been broken, and the air shifted again. The fireplace seemed to sigh, as if it was breathing. I fashioned it must have been the wind, but I noticed the trees outside the window did not sway. Not even the leaves stirred on their branches. Yet there it was again, this breathy sigh. I sat for a moment contemplating, for a fireplace cannot and does not breathe, and again another sigh, louder this time, and it continued like that, inhale, exhale, inhale, exhale, louder and more forceful each time, until it became a rasping wheeze, the noise filling every corner of the room. Unable to bear it any longer, I flung the teacup at the fireplace and cried out, my cry was met only with silence. No wheezing. No sighing. Just the steam from the spilled tea 
rising in a steady column up the chimney. Could it really have been the sound of my own breath echoing in the emptiness? I slunk from the bed to retrieve the shattered porcelain from the hearth and sheepishly returned to the kitchen to make a fresh cup of tea. I felt a flush of embarrassment warm my cheeks. What would the neighbours think? Before remembering that my neighbours would think nothing of it, for all of them were dead. The whole of that first week felt like sleepwalking. My head swam with every motion, and it was more than I could manage to focus on any one thing at a time. I mindlessly emptied boxes, leaving their contents littered across the floor, placing them, then replacing them over and over, without really knowing why. The sighing hearth had remained breathless. Now there was a silence that sometimes felt oppressive. But on more than one occasion, I was sure I had heard movement out in the corridor. The air moving strangely, as though disturbed by the presence of another. But I was resolutely alone. In my second week, a letter arrived from Agatha. She gushed about how the family missed me so, but there was no offer to visit, or for me to visit them. She inquired about my studies, though I could tell from her tone that she was not truly interested. My departure from the family home without husband or suitor to pursue my curiosity had apparently caused quite the scandal. One that I was grateful to be away from, but clearly one my younger sister would be dining out on for quite some time. She also asked after the house, romanticising the idea of living in a small town out in the country, away from the heat and heaviness of the city. Though the blanket of yellow-tinged cloud laying thick over the hills that day could easily have passed for smog. As I went to write my reply, I wondered whether I should tell her about the strange sounds and unusual goings-on. I feared she would think me mad, or dismiss such things as the fantasies of an overactive imagination. Agatha always was the practical one. But she was also my sister, which made her my confidant, and if I could not entrust my fears to my sister, then I could entrust them to no one. I sat at the somewhat battered writing desk I had put underneath the window in the sitting room, and uncorked a half-empty bottle of black ink. As I began to recount the fortnight's peculiarities, my writing became fast and feverish, my penmanship deteriorating as I endeavoured to document every detail of every sound, every unsettling feeling. I became trance-like, as though the pen was dancing across the page entirely to its own tune, my hand merely its partner swept up in the motion, until it was stopped. Dead. It was a grisly sound. Lead and glass and crunching bone. I abandoned the desk and hurried down the stairs, heaving open the heavy front door and running barefoot to the front of the building. But the delicate creature was already dead. Its tiny head lay at an ungodly angle a dark stain already seeping into its mottled feathers. I scooped up the unfortunate thing and wrapped it in the shawl that was perpetually draped around my shoulders and carried its body back up the stairs. I laid it shawl and all into one of the empty moving boxes. I would ask the funeral director to bury it in the grounds. As I returned to the desk, a dark pool was creeping across both desk and paper from the overturned bottle of ink. I must have knocked it as I rushed out to the poor bird. 
I righted the bottle and mopped up most of the now sticky ink with a handkerchief, dabbing at the letter to my sister. Underneath the ugly blotch, I wrote about the incident that had just occurred, then left the paper to dry and went to wash my ink-stained hands. I posted the letter to Agatha the following afternoon. It was the first time I'd left the apartment since I arrived. The small-town folk milled about the high street like chickens in a coop and paid almost no mind to me, save for one old woman. She was well-dressed, leaning on a parasol as though it were a walking cane, but her clothes looked nearly as old as her, with moth-eaten lace and a threadbare jacket. The wide brim of her hat was pulled down low over her face, but I could see that her milky eyes did not leave me once as I went to the postbox, deposited my letter, and returned the way I came. Her gaze was intense, like that of a painting that follows you around a room. Though I could still feel her stare boring into the back of my head as I reached the end of the street, when I turned back, the old woman was gone. It had started to rain by the time I got back to the apartment. Grey raindrops landed with heavy splashes onto my hat. The leaves on the path up to Ballard's slick under my shoes. The hem of my dress sodden with the murky water. As I opened the door, the apartment felt cold compared to the spring air outside. I slipped out of my damp dress and stockings in the corridor, depositing the wet clothes at the top of the stairs, and immediately went to draw a bath the first I had taken in my new residence. Curls of steam wound their way around my frame as I sank into the relative comfort of the lukewarm water, a welcome change from the creeping cold of the room. I folded my limbs down under the water, leaned my head back on the edge of the tub and allowed my eyes to close. I cannot say how long I drifted, but whatever comfort I had drawn from the warmth of the water evaporated as quickly as the steam when I opened my eyes. My body lay still, but from the edge of the tub came an unmistakable ripple over the surface of the water, as though something had been plunged into it. I fished about under the now cloudy water, surmising that the block of soap I'd been using had slid into the bath and roused me from my dreamy state, but it was nowhere to be found. Feeling suddenly exposed and vulnerable, I got out of the tub, and wrapped a rough towel around my shoulders. I didn't even bother to empty the bathwater, instead retiring straight to bed as dusk began to fall around my fortress of blankets. It was a week before Agatha responded to my letter, the envelope waiting for me when I pulled myself from bed around midday on what I think was a Wednesday. Being alone with nowhere to go and no one to see meant the days had melted into one another frequent nighttime disturbances affecting my sleep badly. Agatha's tone was markedly different in this letter. While her words spoke comfort, contempt seeped from the pages. She urged me to go out and make friends instead of wallowing in my loneliness and creating fanciful stories, suggesting I abandon my studies to try and find a suitable partner after all. Maybe a simple country man would do me some good. I crumpled the letter in my fist, Yet, as I did it, I was struck by the fact that I had not once even thought to study since I had arrived in this place. Aside from the letter to my sister, the writing desk and piles of volumes beside it had been untouched. These unusual goings-on had become my only pastime. One might say obsession. A wave of disappointment cascaded through me. 
Why had I come here? I tossed Agatha's letter aside and started for the sitting room, but out of the corner of my eye I could see the crumpled paper hanging in the air. I hesitated for a second before spinning round to look properly, but as I did, it fell straight onto the floor, as if it had been dropped from that very spot. I had spent most of that day simmering over Agatha's last correspondence, insulted by her disbelief, when it was so clear that I was being tormented by these unseen terrors. I had come to dread the night time, willing myself awake into the small hours in the hope of avoiding another of these terrifying disturbances. Or perhaps, secretly hoping for some tangible proof of them to show my sister that I was not mad. That evening I had sat at my desk to write a response, only to scribble, curse and abandon the idea several times, unable to express myself sufficiently. I have no memory of the sun setting, nor of falling asleep. When I woke, I was slumped over the writing desk, a terrible scratching sound in my ears, nails dragging across the desk, so close to my face that I flinched as though the sound alone would shred my skin. Petrified, I pressed my eyelids tight, heaved my leaden arms from my sides and pushed my palms to my ears as hard as I could to dull that awful sound. I stayed, frozen there, catatonic in my fear, until the scratching stopped. Only when I was sure the room had fallen silent again did I dare to lift my head and open my eyes. In the dim moonlight, I could see that the surface of the desk was as smooth as it had always been. But my nails were splintered. My hands were streaked with blood. After this, I was convinced that there was something in the apartment with me. It could not possibly have been another person, but whatever it was, I could feel its presence everywhere like a shadow, uncomfortably close. I started to wonder about the morticians downstairs, about restless spirits detached from their human form, wandering the unknown halls, looking for their bodies. I recoiled from the thought, too disturbing to dwell upon. But it gnawed at me, this notion that whatever was here was not actually here. Yet it was there, I could feel it. My sister only thought it my imagination because she could not see or feel these things that were happening to me. And they were happening. I woke with a start in the depth of night. I could feel them beside me, faceless, disembodied, but they were there. If there were breath in their lungs, I would have felt it tickling my ear, hot and damp. I could not comprehend what these presences may have been, but they were attracted to me somehow. The strange, breath-like noises, the movements from nowhere, it had to have been them. The dead mimicking the sensations of the living, drawn to the memory of life like moths to a flame, and I was the lamplight burning above their shadow world. I reached out to touch them but my fingers grazed nothing but the cool night air. For a moment all was settled, but then it came. A compulsion that I could neither understand nor deny. It was like some distant spectral call, imperceptible but definite. It urged me barefoot from my bed 
down into the bowels of the building, into the mortuary, to a stunning coffin inlaid with fragrant rosewood and mother of pearl. As I lifted the lid, I had expected a sight most macabre, the corpse of some lost soul that needed my help to solve the untold mystery of their death, perhaps. But inside was only quiet, solitude, peace. As quickly as it had arrived, the compulsion was gone, and suddenly I was exhausted. My legs buckled beneath me. I slipped into the silken lining, which stroked my skin like fingertips. A world away from the rough workman's hands of my usual woolen blankets, and lay down for a moment. My strength regaining, I went to lift myself from the coffin, yet found I could not move. There was a weight pressing down on my trembling body. But it was not unpleasant. It was heavy and warm, like the embrace of a lover. I was pinned to my makeshift bed. A cavernous voice reverberated inside my head. This is where you belong. I closed my eyes until the voice faded away into silence. When I opened them again, darkness had swallowed me. Nathaniel left early for work, hoping to arrive before Mr. Ballard, but he had already beaten him there, even at this hour. In an attempt to avoid any stilted pleasantries with his master, Nathaniel went through the back door, straight into the basement where Ballard kept the bodies. He almost tripped over the lifeless body of a sparrow as he ran down the steps. Poor thing had flown into a window above and broken its neck. Nathaniel pushed it aside with his boot and headed inside. Before he crossed the threshold, he froze. He was only an apprentice, but he had seen enough death to render the idea of ghosts as merely superstition. Yet he may as well have been staring straight at one for the fear that had a hold of his insides. The coffin he had so carefully prepared for the recently deceased Countess Morgan before he left for the weekend had been sealed tight. Nathaniel steadied himself in the doorway and swallowed hard, already anticipating the bile gurgling up into his throat, though whether it was from revulsion at what may be inside or fear of Mr. Ballard's reaction, he was not sure. Ballard kept a stash of gin in the mortuary, assuming Nathaniel was not aware of it. He took a large swig of the perfumed liquor to calm his trembling hands before he prized open the lid of the coffin. At first he was struck by the unmistakable scent of roses, second by the understated beauty of the woman he found inside. She was pretty for a Jane Doe. She looked clean but ghostly pale, with smooth skin and ash-blonde hair. Dressed simply but well, He didn't take her for a common streetwalker. Someone must have loved her to have broken into the mortuary and placed her body in a coffin they clearly could not afford to bury her in. But without a name, she could have been anyone he wished to make her. The only unsettling thing was her hands. The fingernails were splintered and crusted with dried blood, like she had been scratching or clawing at something. But the lid of the coffin was untouched. There was nothing to reveal her identity, 
and Nathaniel had no time to deduce it without Ballard finding his precious discovery. It seemed a shame to throw her into a pauper's grave, but he had little choice under the watchful gaze of his master. As he went to lift her limp body from the coffin, Nathaniel noticed a small pebble with a hole in its centre dangling from a cord around her neck. Without second thought, he tugged at the cord, snapping it, and slipped the cool stone into his pocket. He thought she deserved to have someone remember her, and their current situation had afforded that duty to him. He decided he'd call her Rose, and swiped one of her namesakes in a deep, whiny red from a tribute meant for someone else. As he slipped the bloom inside his waistcoat, he caught his finger on one of the barbed thorns. He carried Rose's body outside, with the taste of blood in his mouth.